So I had just taped this intro and now I'm taping it again because when I taped it before, I actually wasn't taping. So I've spoken to this microphone for about seven to eight minutes, thinking that it was going to be recorded for posterity, but I had not pressed the button. This is interesting to me because when you hear a take, like let's say you hear a take on a rap song, it sounds like that was the only take that ever happened, but it wasn't. There might have been seven to ten takes before that, but you're only hearing the last one, just like you're only hearing this version of the intro, because now I got to completely freestyle a new one. This is the, what is this? This is Secret Skin. <laughs> I had it so good a minute ago. On this episode, I speak with Jeremy Greer from the Don't Give Up Skeleton podcast and the Days of Future cast about my 2016 album Hella Personal Film Festival. Um, there's a lot of stories about that album specifically because I recorded it, most of it, I recorded most of it in London with the producer Paul White. And it's not the way that I typically put my stuff together. So there's a lot of stories to unpack there. Um, around the way the songs were written and recorded, about the influences, the motivations, the reception, all of that. And we get into it uh, in detail with Jeremy. Um, we got some tour dates coming up that I want to tell you about, specifically because uh, we just got back from the first leg of the tour, me and Video Dave did, and we ended in Chicago. Uh, our next leg is in Southern California. We do Los Angeles and Santa Ana, and then we move on to the East Coast where we have New York, D.C., Philly, and Boston, and we do Texas and Houston, uh, Dallas, and Austin. We do, we do the Northwest in Seattle and Portland, and we go down to the Bay Area in San Francisco. Um, and I want to announce that joining me in Video Dave on those shows, on the two Southern California shows, will be joined by the Koreatown Oddity, an amazing MC out of Southern California. Uh, we've never done shows together, so I'm really happy about that. And on the rest of the tour, we'll be joined by a friend of mine, but also an artist I've been admiring for years and years and years. Legit one of my favorite rappers of all time, and I'm and I'm privileged to call him a friend. Mr. Serengeti is going to join us for the East Coast, Texas, Northwest, and Bay Area shows. So make sure you grab tickets for that. Tickets to moving shows are filling up. Um, you can find all the dates at MikeEagle.net or you can go to my Twitter and there's a link tree. All that stuff's pretty easy to find, so grab them because they is moving. Ooh, um, I forgot what else I talked about before. Oh, yes. If you want to support this show, you can join my Patreon at patreon.com slash openmikeeagle. We put a lot of demos up there. We do a podcast that is exclusive to that platform called The Hella Personal Podcast. It's named after... Uh, one of my patrons came up with that name and it's only for that platform. Uh, you won't hear it anywhere else. We also have a secret discord where we uh, talk about stuff all day long. Um, gain access to all of that and also help out myself and the show. Um, what's next? I don't know. I think I said other things in the other version of the intro that I've now forgotten. We're just going to go ahead and get into this interview then. This is Stony Island Audio. This is Open Mike Eagle speaking with Jeremy Greer about my 2016 album, Hella Personal Film Festival, produced by Paul White. And this time I was recording. Ladies and gentlemen, this is another episode of secret skin where i what had happened wasing myself again i'm gonna do an exploration on one of my projects i'm privileged to be joined by an excellent interviewer podcaster who i had the the pleasure of speaking with on his don't give up skeleton podcast mr jeremy greer how are you uh, first off, the privilege is all mine, Mike. I am I am so happy to We're be gonna here. We're going to be sharing uh, privileges, is... sir. You're going you're to have to let that go. We're going to be sharing privileges. That's part of what this is. We just have to get into a loop of privilege <laughs> here. Just loop it over and over again until the feedback becomes too much to bear. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm very happy to be here. I'm very happy to talk to you about this album. I'm very excited about this. I'm excited as well. Um, quick question for you. Like I said, you're a host of the Don't Give Up Skeleton podcast. You also, I forgot the name of your X-Men podcast. You tell me that one again. Days of Future Cast. You've been doing Don't Give Up Skeleton 
for quite some time. Uh, and that's your podcast where you interview people who are fans of from software games, so the Dark Souls, uh, Bloodborne, Sekiro, and now um, Elden Ring group of games. And it's such an interesting thing to interview people about specifically. Uh, I'm curious if there's like any main takeaway you've learned in terms of like what's gotten people into those games over the years. Into the games is interesting. The main takeaway that I've gotten is what people get out of them, which is like cure for depression in a lot of ways. Um, a lot of people get into these games because um, a friend said, hey, this is something really cool or you'd be into this or they've heard like, oh, these games are super hard and you know, you like super hard games and then they get involved with them and they realize like, oh, this is way more than I thought it was. Like they're very emotional games, uh, which is not something that I think the advertising has ever touched on across any of them you, you don't see commercials with you know people crying in the corner <laughs> about dark souls that doesn't exist and it's interesting so that people like respond in that emotional way I've, there's so many people that i've talked to that have said like i had severe anxiety or depression or i had this severe medical thing happen to me or whatever it was and dark souls got me through that and i that's something that's unique to from software games of those of that generation because I don't think anybody's ever said that about Call of Duty. <laughs> I don't think anybody's ever said that about NBA 2K. Not that those are bad games, but like I don't know. And maybe maybe there are podcasts that interview people about their Call of Duty experiences, and I'm just not in that. You know, I'm not in that lane. So they probably use very different language than the ones than than the words we'll be using here <laughs> or you using yours. But you know what? You bring up a very good point because the marketing of those games is a lot to do with how difficult they are but you're right like i think one thing that's true in all of those games is that the story is really deep and emotionally affecting like and you get invested in these you get invested in characters many of whom are long dead <laughs> you know <laughs> it's real it's really something and and you're right that's a, that's a thing about those games that i don't think is talked about enough you could play 60 hours of a video game and not realize that one of the most important characters is someone you talk to at the beginning and that and why they were important or who they were or how they relate to the story whatsoever so it's a uh, they're unique in that way. You have to you have to kind of dig on them a little bit, and I think there's that's not to completely steal this interview. Oh from no, you, I'm going to uh, hand it to but you. But like, <laughs> uh, take it, please. I think that's something that's unique about you as a as a musician and as a writer because this is one of the first times I've interviewed a musician about their music outside of like a Dark Souls kind of angle or anything, and listening to songs and trying to come up with intelligent questions about them that I didn't already have in my head as just like a fan was super interesting to me because your writing has a lot of layers as well. Like there's a lot of things going, going through it. And I naively thought that I had the easy album, right? Like <laughs> you gave all the hard albums, you gave anime trauma and divorce <laughs> to other people, brick body, still daydream. You don't need me on that. <laughs> like that's, that's a hard album to deal with. Uh, and then I started listening to this one and I'm like, no, no, this is still, this has still got a lot of layers that we're going to have to peel back. Absolutely. Does. Songs. And, just, and just to set it up before I hand it off to you, this is, uh, this conversation is centering around my 2016 album uh, made with Paul White, Hella Personal Film Festival. And with that, I turn it over to you. I want to start with Paul. Is this the only album that you've wor worked with as, a, as just one producer? Uh, I believe I've only done it twice. So my album Animal Hospital was all produced by Awkward, who's also from the UK. And yeah, and then Hella Personal Film Festival all produced by Paul White. And I believe, I believe that's the only couple of times I've done that. I'm curious as to the decision to come to that, because I think most of the music that I'm most familiar with you, especially as an album person, uh, is you kind of picking beats and responding to those beats and writing songs around them from a wild array of producers. What drove you to this project and specifically Paul? I first heard Paul White beats, I believe, on like Danny Brown's album. I can't remember which one. It's how I became familiar with him. Eating on the Adderall, wash it down with alcohol, writing holy mackerel, actual or factual, out for the capital, matador, your capsules. With every beat I ever heard from him, I just really liked how musical all of them were. And then I had the pleasure of meeting him and getting linked up with him. And, and you know, we decided we wanted to start working together. I found out he's like very, very, very productive. Like he he makes a lot of beats. He's very prolific is a better word. He he had so many beats. 
And that's like, I think that's the thing that is the first thing that usually stands in the way of trying to make a project with one person is them having enough beats to start with and then them having enough beats that I'm like really into and feel inspired by. And he just had a bunch. Um, so, you know, we we got to work in and then, you know, kind of saw the potential of what we can do. And then we kind of organized it for my first uh, UK tour that on that tour, um, him and I were going to get in the studio and just make a bunch of music. And 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 those are the, the sessions that birthed this album. Did you record all of that in London all at the same time? Did you f- finish the album outside of, you know, mixing and mastering and all of that stuff? We started it in London. And I want to say we did either half or two thirds of the songs in like a week out there. Yeah, That's it was crazy, nuts because I'd never I never <laughs> even worked like that before. Like I usually work in my house and I can take a million years and, and do something over and over and over and over and over again until I get it like I want it. But, um, you know, there were some times I was writing that day uh, to get in the studio with him that evening and we'd lay stuff down. That's why in some of the lyrics there's like very uh, British references because I was like taking it all in and then going to the studio and writing. Uh, so I say we did ha- at, at least half of it, maybe a little more of it in that week. And then we developed the rest of it after I came home. So I was I looked up videos of you from that time. And I found you saying um, in an interview that you usually like want to take your time and uh, answer the question that the beat is asking you when you're writing. And you decided for this project that you wanted to answer it in a faster way. I'm curious if like looking back now on this, a, did it work? And B, have you carried that forward with other projects? On my new album, the songs that I made with Diamond D, those were all done in three days. Basically one day per song. There's no, there's no yeah. way. I've listened to those songs. There's no way. <laughs> so I'll fight you, uh, Crenshaw and Homeland. And, and well, um, CD Only bonus track is a little different because all of my parts were done in one day. But then we went and got Aesop and then, and then Diamond added his verse later. But all of my parts on those three songs were all done in three days. So I'll Fight You was one day, Crenshaw and Homeland was the second day, and See the Only Bonus Track was the third day. And that sort of musculature was birthed with this album, where I was able to do that, where I put myself in a mindset to do that. Now, it took me a bunch of prep, because the one advantage I had with Hella Personal Film Festival is that I had a lot of the beats beforehand. So I could do some writing, I could get some prep, I could start to organize my thoughts. And and then it was just kind of the recording that was the the fresh thing that had to be done that day and, and needed to be as final as possible. Whereas um, with Diamond, I didn't even have a beat. Like we spent the first half of the first session just kind of figuring out what beats we were going to use and going from there. Sports walkman, bright yellow waterproof. I know I know we're not talking about this new album, but I, I have to congratulate you on it. The only reason it's not been on repeat for the last week is because I reached out to you about this and I've been listening to this album <laughs> instead. Well, I hope you go back to it. <laughs> I will, I will. I'm a, I've been listening to the Secret Skit episodes and, and interviews and stuff, and every time I listen to uh, a podcast where you talk about it, just immediately when you want to go and listen to it with with new ears, right? Like, And I felt that way about all of the Secret Skin episodes you've done. As you've been reviewing your your past discography, doing these podcasts, where does this fit for you? Obviously, it's hard to pick favorites and things like that, but like when you look back on it, like where do, what do you feel about this? I really, really like it because, like I said, Paul's beats are so musical. And so they pulled all these different choruses and different types of flows. And just like, I was able to inject a lot of whimsy into it. I think that what I discovered pretty quickly after it came out is that, and and this is this is this is the thing that's that's hard about making music for me, is that when I'm in the trenches making it, I'm really just kind of looking at the songs for what they are and bringing my best to everything that we're doing. And it's not necessarily easy for me to put how an album sounds in a context to other albums that I'm not working on at that time. So, but what I quickly realized was that the the musicality of it really set it apart from the rest of my catalog in a way that I wasn't like front brain conscious of. And and what that meant was when I was touring and doing a lot of this music, 
it was a departure from the rest of my set. When these beats would come on in the set, it would sound different than the other stuff. So it was then when I really started to take notice, like, oh, these sit different. These hit a little different than the others. So it's like the kind of situation where I need to focus a set around this music versus trying to interweave it into other stuff because it didn't go back and forth very easily. And and so yeah, like so I think I think my feelings about it are kind of complicated because I really like it, but I don't feel like it was received as well as I thought it would be. I was going to ask you about that because uh, I went and read. There's been a recent conversation in your Discord server about music reviews, um, especially about rap albums and things like that. And um, the Dad Bad Rap Pad just had a tweet uh, just in the last couple of days about you know Pitchfork giving out another 7.8 to what's probably a 10.0 album, that kind of thing. And going back and looking at reviews for this, everybody seems to like it. Uh, they just don't rate it <laughs> very highly. I don't understand. And I think that's like a problem with rap reviews in general. But how much attention do you pay attention to that? How much does it get under your skin? Because I would imagine as like somebody who is literally putting their their thoughts and feelings on the page and the, in the music and having people be like, eh, you know, mid. <laughs> like that's got to be incredibly frustrating. The reviews aren't very frustrating. They used to be. But that also coincided with me not having a super big handle on what I was doing. As my career progressed, and I would say around like dark comedy, I really started to kind of figure out what it was that I was trying to do. From that point forward, most reviews are generally positive. Even if they're somewhat negative, it doesn't bother me like it used to. The frustrating part is the scoring. And and it's not that like even that is like super getting under my skin or anything like that. It's just that the dissonance between the review and the scores just always hits me in a weird way. I always feel like I'll read a review that has almost nothing but nice things to say. And then it's like, if it's a 7.8, it's like, I don't really understand why. And like, that's the part that's like weird. It seems like there's some fault in the system somewhere. I, I've read or I've heard that, you know, writers write the reviews and editorial gives out the score. But I don't think that system's working. It kills me though when you when you when I read stuff like when I read those ten point reviews and I see like a seven point five I'm like who why like what where was the where was the two point five at like I don't understand tell me where that two point five went that's that's the thing yeah where where did where did the two point two go you know like I'm not naive enough to expect that somebody's going to give me a ten like I'm not because like there's a lot of limits in what I can do because I operate independently. My budgets are small. Um, and, well, I wouldn't call this a limit. I'd say this is a choice. Like, I don't make mass market choices. So then, and, and I think by the nature of that, there's always going to be some segment of people who are just kind of not into it. And and I think because of that, like, I think that's going to be, it's going to be hard to get a 10, right? Because I'm, rarely going to make something everybody likes. And I'm cool with that. You know, like I, I think I'm I'm perfectly comfortable with that. It's just that I, I wish that there was a way for me to understand how I'm rated. We need to interview all of the reviewers. Oh, I've thought about that so much. <laughs> for years, I've thought about, oh, if I could just review the reviews, right? Like, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Let's get it. <laughs> but at the end of the day, I really appreciate all of that because th there was a time when I wasn't getting a lot of reviews. There was a time when like I used to have to really campaign to try to get stuff covered. And now the fact that that happens, like I'm just comfortable with that. And I'm, I'm, I'm grateful for that. And as much as we make of reviews, I really think the real story is how consumers feel about the work. I really feel like that's the real story. And, and that's, you know, when you asked me this question, I wasn't thinking about the reviewers. I was thinking about people. I think like there's people that don't like this one as much. I feel like maybe those people aren't necessarily fans of mine, but they might be fans of like indie hip hop or hip hop in general. I think when a lot of those people heard this, especially coming off of dark comedy, they were wanting something that sounded like that. And this doesn't sound like that. You know, like I think the subject matter is more emotional, even if that's not immediately apparent. It's a lot more musicals, a lot more live instrumentation, and a lot less banging beat type thing. There were some people who weren't into that.
you mentioned something just then about the budget and you know breaking into that like mass market appeal. I'm curious, having watched you for a long time promote albums and hearing you on podcasts just have almost kind of a disdain for it. Has your work at promoting changed from this album to what it is now? Yeah, I think now everybody knows that the majority of the bulk of the weight of promotion is on me and my social media. We're like, I think back in 2016, we were still all kind of figuring that out. And and we're all looking for these other magic bullets and solutions and other ways to to make stuff happen. I mean, we do PR and PR is extremely helpful. Um, all of these reviews that I'm half complaining about and half grateful for, like they all come from from PR, you know, and 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 it's 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 really helpful in terms of the impact of a release. But at the end of the day, it's on me to keep people interested. It's on me to let people know that this exists and keep it afloat. Keeping it afloat is on me. And I think I just know that more now. And I try to set myself up psychologically to have the energy to keep doing that as long as I can. Like, I'm, I'm going to spend the next month retweeting everybody that talks about this. And I'm just going to, I'm going to be that person that does that because I have to be that person because this is my job. I used to feel bad about that. I don't feel bad about it anymore. Like, I, I feel tired of doing it. it. Like, it's exhausting, but I don't feel bad about turning my timeline into a promotion machine because that's really what it's there for. That's something that I think about a lot because a lot of stuff I do is just hobby. Like I have a full-time job. So when I start like promoting myself, quote unquote, promoting my podcast, I think like I'm just annoying everybody that followed me. And then I think, well, what? Right. Else would they be following me if they didn't know this stuff? You get caught in this like weird loop of living up to people that don't really exist or care. Yeah, about because stuff. you you uh, want you want to be a human too. Like you like especially because most people online are human like just being human and just having human thoughts and human experiences it's like you want to do that part too but it's really hard to do that and also you know be promoting a product all the time the first track admitting the endorphin addiction blah 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 cries for help all this belly ache is just to say my belly's hurting after all it's all in all in all but maybe every Scorpio is predisposed to never feel as whole as the first time they felt the loss Scorpio line about never feeling as cold as you felt your first loss, really, as a, as a fellow Scorpio that got into his feelings about, you know, November rain a lot as a teenager. Yeah, me too. <laughs> <laughs> like, I feel like that first girl that broke my heart that did not know my name. <laughs> There's a lot of Scorpio on this album. And, I, and I'm, I'm not as into astrology as I was, maybe even around this time. But, uh, you know, they've always... Uh, you know, where water signs and water is supposed to correlate with emotions, and there's a lot of deep emotions on this album and, and that track. Very emotional song. Yeah, I feel so uppity. Peter Piper picked the purple stuff before the sunny D. Summer pants, all of my receptors up and under siege. Itchy middle fingers, triple Indy up the ugly tree. Snap, crack, Sean's in a close. I love to know why people choose the features that they choose. You've had Aesop Rock on a number of, of tracks across the years, even on this most recent album. What draws you to Aesop Rock and like what makes you choose features in general when you're looking for people to be on these songs? Especially at this time, I was thinking about who I admire, but I hadn't worked with officially yet. And, I, and at this time, I had been on at least one tour with him, maybe two. And, um, you know, I, I had enough of a relationship with him where I felt like I could reach out and, and we could work together. Like, our relationship is, like, even more robust now, so it's not even, like, a thing. But I remember being very in my head about reaching out to him <laughs> seeing if he wanted to be on the song, you know. Because, um, like I said, I just, I, I, I've just always been a fan of his and, and, and was really grateful that he had taken me on tour a couple times and, like, uh, exposed me to his fans and, you know, it was like, there were a couple of, like, there's been a couple of times, a few times in my career where, like, I considered something to be, like, a dream collab of mine. Like, you know, and so that's me, you know, and in my early days with, with my group Thirsty Fish having songs with, like, AC Alona, Abstract Root. Like, that was mind-blowing to me, even though we were around them all the time, like, being on a song with them. Um, of course, being on a song with MF Doom, like, that was a lifelong thing. And, and Aesop is, is right up there. Like, just somebody who I'd just been a fan of for so long. And it was just the, the timing was right that it could work out for this one. 
gone here with my Dwayne Wayne looking ass I'm on a stupid mic stand carved from a wooden staff I'm trying to relive days that I couldn't grab I looked up when Lena Dunham said and I shouldn't have I don't know how I ever faced the eyes of the So I, I went outside today, it's the second track on the album We've already talked about the Aesop Rock being on it I think we have to talk about the Lena Dunham line because it's something that I see you still get comes traffic for you still get you still get people talking to you about it. Do you <laughs> remember up. have any idea? I think I made note, but do you have any idea what at the time this was written about? I'm just curious. I believe that someone cuz this is when her HBO show Girls was out. It was something really weird. It was something about like white people and precious or something. It was something really <laughs> odd. And I just I feel yeah. like it was it was something really strange. Like, oh, I don't want to write black people. And I think she was she was probably trying to say something, but it just came off as super weird. And then as the more that show went on, you just realize, oh no, you're just a you're just an odd person saying weird things. You know, at the time I remember just really wishing I hadn't read that and just like having one of those moments where I realized there's no reason that I'd had to. Like I didn't need to know what she thinks about anything. It doesn't matter. Um, so that was that was the feeling that sparked that line. It's like, oh, I did this and I shouldn't have, and a kind of reminder of myself to not do that anymore. I travel light like a choir can't a modern satellites equipped to spy on a fire ant, which is cool because them fuckers is dangerous. I'm trying to learn to face fuck. So I went to Genius for probably the first time to specifically look something up. Genius believes at the end of this verse, uh, the first verse, that you got literally bitten by a fire ant. What? Because you ended abruptly. <laughs> like you're <laughs> you're talking about you're talking about fire ants, uh, and then you like stop the line halfway through and like fuck. Uh, <laughs> and I'm like, there's no. number one, how would they know? And number two, there's no way. There's no fire ants don't exist in Britain. Number two, so I don't think that that was. <laughs> Can you imagine how weird it would be <laughs> if I was if I had either just said the word fire ant and was a, or was about to <laughs> and at that very moment a fire ant bit like that would be incredible literally a fire ant that would be like that would be evidence of some sort of like rap superpower if i could like mention something and then get bitten by it like immediately after the God. Imagine having that conversation with Professor Xavier. <laughs> so what do you do? Well, I, I rap about things, and then they immediately happen then, to but, me. But look, they only bite me, no matter what it is. <laughs> I'm so invincible. I'm so invincible. I'm not so vulnerable like I was before. And I feel wonderful. Dang, dang. Going on to Dang is Invincible, the whole vibe of this song is like, I kind of get like a, today was a good day. Like, I, I'm, you're just going through life, you're, you're kind of having, things are happening. Um, the song is very aggressive, like, compared to the first two tracks, and compared to really a lot, most of the other tracks on the album where Paul has that real melodic quality to it, and you're kind of floating on top of that, this feels a lot more in your face. Was that planned? Was that something that you guys worked on together? Or was it, did the writing informed the music or did the music inform the writing for that? I think the music informed the writing on all of these. And I think there were different times throughout the process where I was like looking for something a little up-tempo, a little energetic. This one did happen like a little later in the process. And I think uh, I was looking for something with a little more push to it, found this beat. There's a line at the end about a, a situation you referenced a lot about the Hellfire Club and kind of the, the way that things went down with all of that situation. And you've talked a lot about that extensively on other podcasts, so I don't necessarily want to get into any of that. But how hard is it for you even in writing, to have this experience where you're having a good day and then to have that thought come up of like, this thing happened and it just kind of completely derail your day. Does that happen in your writing and in your day-to-day -day life? Because it happens to me a lot where I'm just cruising along down the interstate and then all of a sudden, oh, that thing I did in seventh grade <laughs> does not. <laughs> uh, you know, It's you a terrible know, time. What, what, what happens with me is that it doesn't quite like completely dive bomb my day, but like, so I'm just always thinking like 100 thoughts a second anyway. And occasionally, I'll just start feeling real bad. And I'm like, why am I feeling real bad? 
and I'll kind of like try to scan recent thoughts. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I was like, oh yeah. <laughs> I thought about something that made me feel fucked up. And like, and it and it yeah. happened in my body. And like five minutes later, I'm still like feeling like that, you know? Sure. So that's that's kind of how it goes down for me. Whatever the worst version of an adrenaline rush yeah. is. Like the, <laughs> yeah. It's like a poison <laughs> rush. Yeah. It's like yeah, it's something opposite of that. I'm a terrible person. Which yeah, is, I guess. Yeah, what I've, we, I've, yeah. I've made another mistake at some point in time, and it will continue to haunt me at, at random intervals. Or, I, or I will make a mistake, mm-hmm. or I am making a mistake, or just anything. Yeah, that can. And I, it was really like listening through this, and it's a lot of you just like, hey, things just happened great today. Like I'm, I'm living life good, and then to have that like one little thought in there, and then even that ends like, but you know, we made up. I think I don't remember exactly what the line is, but it was just, it just something occurred to me that like, man, it's. I can I can imagine writing this down and having this like conversation with the beat and yourself and then getting to a spot and be like, wait, I wasn't planning on talking about any of this stuff. Like this is now just on the page. I'm sure it happens a lot, especially with your later records, because you've talked about how personal they are. But does that was that happening even back then? Or does it happen at all? Am I way off track? No, it happens. But I think this is what I, I try to be more conscious of this now, because what will happen is this. I'll write something and feel really good about it and not really genuinely think about the fact that I'm going to end up saying it on stage in a room full of people. It's difficult to generate the kind of vibe at a show that I like to generate. Like, it's it, well, not difficult. It just takes a lot of energy. And I've found that, like, I can write something that in the future can fuck up energy in a show that I worked hard to create. I've tried to become more conscious of, like, Okay, this line I think is cool or it amuses me, but am I going to be able to stand on this line three months from now when there's a packed show and we've worked really hard to get them to a place? And now I'm going to say this weird thing and like, is there a way I can still say this that's going to not fuck things up? Like, So I try to be a little bit more conscious of it than I used to be because I've had that happen plenty of times now. Hey you. I won't work without checking my phone first. Put it down for my son while I'm checking his homework. The world's in my palm, so I'm checking the whole earth. The thumbnail I use to swipe on my phone hers, huh? Checking it ballparks, checking it Walmart. If it was a cat, they got with checking my golf cart. I'm watching football, then I check every ball. Going to check to check. This seems to be the single off the album. This is the one you made a music video for. This is a, an interesting song to do that with because uh, the song is hilarious. Every three seconds, I'm recording right now and I'm checking between texts. Every notification that my phone machine makes. I put it down whenever, but it's never a clean break. I should get a heavy phone and pretend it's a free weight. I'm checking at red lights like school nurse check for headlights like sound men check for dead mics. Just like There's a line checking at headlights like a school nurse checks for headlights, which I've been there. Like I just start looking at my phone at a red light. Like, what am I doing? <laughs> like, what is so important? Like, what is that what is that red bubble going to tell me that I need to know before this light turns green? It's it's a it's a real thing, and that's something that you talk about throughout this album. There's there's references to kind of looking at that screen too much. Is it something you still struggle with, especially during like this time where you're promoting a new album and trying to get out there? For sure. And what I've realized about myself is that it is specifically born of anxiety. Like when I'm feeling okay, I don't need to check it as much. But I've noticed like, oh, if I'm if I'm too restless to not pick my phone up at a red light, like that means there's something else going on with me, you know, and I'm hoping that there's something in this notification that's going to make me feel better. But it never really does. Or forget about whatever you're you're not thinking about, right? Like just to completely distract. Because that does happen. Exactly. <laughs> like it's it's not it's yeah. not medicine, <laughs> but it is certainly a distraction. Next track. The Curse of Hypervigilance in Politics, Romance, and Cohabitation. Uh, I love the long song title, by the way. I love that. That might be that might be the album title, spiritually. Who knows? You know? You came through town in an OG, looking like 1997. One of few hearts with a bold speech, talking about let's go find the weapons. This is maybe my favorite beat on the album. I love a whistling track. I like I, this is one of my f- things that I think people respond to. So right there. And I know you got a question, but this is this is what I'm talking about. Like what I learned with this song specifically, there are people who love a whistling track. There are people who hate a whistling track. There are people who like they hear a whistle and they're fucking out immediately. Like I and I learned this then like it's kind of a microcosm of the experience with this album. It's like some people just really checked the box for them. Some people were like, nope, not enough beat. <laughs> Too much whistle. <laughs> I'm gone. God, now I'm picturing just Andrew Bird having just like the worst time of his life. <laughs> 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 
Oops, picked the wrong crowd. This is not a whistling crowd. Pick the anti-whistlers convention. You shouldn't perform there. You shouldn't go there. <laughs> it's, it's the bad. Yeah, why'd you take the why'd you take the gig, Andrew? <laughs> when you're doing these podcasts specifically about albums that have been around for a little while, this is six, seven years old at this point. Do you remember? Like, do you can you if I say, you know, hey, this is the curse of hypervigilance, it's the whistling track, and you're like, Yep, I remember every single thing about this and how I was feeling. Does it all come back for you? Uh not all the time, but in this song. It does. And I didn't listen to this album before we sat and talked to it like I meant to, but there are certain songs on here that are very visceral to me. And I and and this is a song, I end up coming back to this song a lot because I like this song a lot. Like, this is one of the songs I was most excited for people to hear because I love the beat a lot. I felt like this could have been a hit. Like, I really enjoyed the way I was flowing on it. Like, I really liked that. And this is one of the ones that I wrote while we were in England. Um, and I remember being on the tube uh, all day long, getting around, and I was writing this song, and I was just so happy with how it came out. Just really, really happy with how the song came out. And it's just like, um, it's it's three little stories about how paying attention too much can fuck your mind up. Yeah, yeah. The question that I wrote in my notes, which I don't actually remember writing now, was who hurt you <laughs> <laughs> for this one? <laughs> I was on autopilot sometimes, just like listening to it, kind of with my eyes closed and just kind of reaching over and like tapping on the keyboard. This is an interesting one to me. Do you want to go into any more detail? Well, I can, I can go into detail about the concepts of each, but you know, I mean like, so the first one's about somebody just hypervigilant in a relationship and how that hypervigilance can fuck up the relationship. The second one's about somebody just hypervigilant as a roommate and how that can fuck up that relationship because in every little thing this person does fucks with you because you're paying too much attention to it and then um it's paying too close attention to politics and i think that there was a a link between that and paranoia that i was trying to uh explore well this was right before i mean i'm, I'm assuming you were writing this into 2015 beginning of 2016 so like that's it's right when the world was, was changing the, you you <laughs> yeah we, we had no idea what we were what did for, xavier man? say when you went to sleep and woke up everything changed <laughs> <laughs> everything changed <laughs> Yo, yeah, don't lie to me. They get exposed so violently, the pain in the soul won't go quietly. Do whatever you want, just be straight, show and prove till the truth is a hold and don't wait. Yeah, be straight with me. I know it's hard. I love insecurity a whole, whole lot. I think that there's an idea here, and again, music is so subjective uh, that it's. I don't even want you to disabuse me of this notion if I'm wrong, but like this idea from like, hey, just I can take it tell me everything completely straight and then you're like whoa hold up yep. <laughs> maybe okay and then finally like you know what i don't even, I don't even just just know. give me what i don't even want to know like i'm done i'm done with this conversation and i can see this working in like man I've, i feel like i've had this happen in my life with relationships with friendships with my wife with my relatives with my siblings i'm just like hey i'm going to trust you enough to tell me the oops should have done that <laughs> that was a yep. bad idea that was that yeah. was terrible don't want to don't want to hear that from you Yep. And, and and that's that's exactly that's exactly what it is. That's a hundred percent it. It's like, you know, I think we all believe that we're gonna be down to listen to whatever anybody close to us has to say, but you just never know how you're going to really react and what you know, a person could say some shit that fucks your head up. And then what, you know? Um yeah. And you know, and and it was just really an exploration of that, like how how much do you really want to know? And it's and, and it goes again with the hypervigilance thing, you know. It's like you're you're paying attention, you're asking all the questions, but how much do you really want to know? And I'm sure that ties into the critic thing too, right? Of like, I want you, I want somebody to judge this. Hey, not like right, that. <laughs> like hundred percent, not, not quite like that. Like, be a little bit better when you judge it next time, because I'm this is my life. Like, and you know, you think that you're mentally prepared for that stuff, and sometimes you're just you're just not at all. <laughs> That brings us into uh, Smiling, a quirky race stock, which has the absolutely fantastic phrase, white person strangler. Today I saw a lady say hi to a stranger, then avoid my eyes like I'm a white person strangler. Walking past voters in the Democratic blocks that hit the windows and the automatic locks. If not reparations, give me free black therapy and tell people you're scared of them and make them act scarily. This whole story of just you know i'm walking down the road and nobody's nobody's willing to look me in the eyes or anything um and then 
just because you're such a funny dude, like you make a frozen caveman reference at the same time that you're talking about how you want this to change for your son going forward. To the guys in the flip-flop squad, nobody needs your patronizing hip-hop nod. Just be a person, that's the bottom line. Be a person and fuck the rhyme scheme this time. Just be a person that I can be a person too and we can be people. Skip the validation and the need to feel equal. The dominated culture gets the truth from any modes of expression and reflection of the path that they done chose. And my perception is froze like a caveman lawyer advocating for myself while trying to seem dumber than I is I'm tired of thinking about this biz I'm just trying to build a bridge for my goddamn kid so the first time if ever his reputation slid it could actually be for something that he did and I just those two ideas like if you're actually actively listening to to the and you're like did he just frozen caveman lawyer to, wanted to build a bridge for it's like it just it's one of those things where you just really have to think about it and like that concept is kind of mike eagle in a nutshell for me of just making those really astute observations and then undercutting it with something funny and also heartbreaking at the same time and that idea of like your kid being judged for who he is and not the color of his skin is something that i think probably speaks to a lot of people out there like it just they, they, he should be given that opportunity and not just judged as a white person strangler which again is one of the funniest <laughs> Phrases. <laughs> Speaking of phrases, my my really my my main takeaway from this song after all of these years is that I just really regret saying the word ghost fart in the hook. I just really deeply regret yeah. saying it. I do. I do. I started regretting it very quickly. I remember like when I wrote it, I was like, should I do this? And I was like, I should do this. And then as soon as it came out, I was like, no, I shouldn't have done that. I should not have done that. It's all fine and dandy when the show starts Before then, avoid it like a ghost fart I get what ups and nods, but for the most part Nobody smiles at me cause I'm a black man I think, I, I, I do like a good fart joke I just think in retrospect, in hindsight I can safely say this was not the right time for one <laughs> In the middle of this In the middle of the, in the hook Where I have to keep saying it too No, it's this is one of those ones where I like try to do it live and I said the hook and I was like, oh, this was, this is a mistake. How often do you, do people come to a Mike Eagle concert not knowing who Mike Eagle is? Does that happen it to does. you a lot even now? It does. Uh, yeah. Because there's just a lot of ways that people could have become aware of me that have nothing to do with music. And because of that, people might have some interest in me as a personality and then want to come check the show out to see, you know, what the music is. Or they might have heard one song or two songs and really like them or you know like it's just a, there's a there's a lot of there's a lot of catalog and not a lot of people have heard the whole thing so even if somebody is aware of me musically they can still come to a show and be surprised because there could be plenty of stuff played that they haven't heard since you started the patreon discord you know that idea that like there's a lot of material and like and i feel like even having conversations with those people who i think would probably be the Mike Eagle fans, the people that are giving you money and hanging out in your community every single month. There's even like people that are like, yeah, I like this album. And that's strange to me because I feel like with a lot of people, people are like, no, I like, I want to listen to everything. Do you ever question that and like wonder why? Do you ever do you ever get confused as to why that would be? Occasionally I'm surprised by it, but I don't think I'm confused by it because th what I've noted is this. I think I first started to get some level of fandom off of my second album just some measure like some people started coming to shows to check me out and so then that was like a an era like a like a phase um and that kind of continued through animal hospital and then dark comedy kind of exposed me to some new fans but a lot of those people that came around for dark comedy did not go back to peep the older stuff <laughs> you know like why? I, I mean it's so weird to me <laughs> i don't i don't necessarily know why i mean i i think when i look back that if I'm to try to answer that question, I'd say maybe because when you listen to dark comedy, it sounds so resolute in what it is. And that and that's just in terms of personality, technique, beats. It sounds so fully formed. I think when you go back to Animal Hospital, just the, the record before that sounds like I'm trying to figure it out. And those beats are very different than the dark comedy beats. And I and I think that like maybe some people went back and were like, oh, okay, no, I'm I like this stuff, you know? So then Dark Comedy came out, and then a special episode came out, which people were really into, that EP after Dark Comedy. And then uh, Hella Personal Film Festival came out, which was sort of divisive. Uh, and then Brick Body came out, and that brought in another wave of people. And again, I don't think that wave of people went back and listened to all of the old stuff. 
you know, and and I've just kind of noted like th- like there's these just kind of distinct different phases of when people have gotten to me. I feel like when I get into an artist, I'm inclined to go back and check the old stuff, but I, I guess not everybody's like that. <laughs> I guess not. Wash your hands, make no demands. Try to mind your own business. Wash your hands, make no demands. Try to mind your own business. It ain't even cold, people leg her up. And Lady Luck gave a fuck what you making up. Sometimes pain's even smaller than the paper cut. And while you all up in her face, she done faced enough. In LA, people judge you if you take the bus. And rich folks say, hey, come to space with us. What? Next track is Leave People Alone. I have a note here that if I only had to go by Open Mike Eagle albums, I would think living in LA is absolutely awful. <laughs> it sounds like it sounds like you've never enjoyed like every single time you mention living in LA, it's in a negative connotation. That is hilarious. Um, <laughs> is it true? Because I've I've been to LA, but I've I've never lived in in California. So it's a place with a lot going for it, but being an enjoyable place to live is not necessarily one of them. Like. If cars were sentient, cars would say this is the best place ever. But for humans, like <laughs> humans are like value slightly under cars, I think, and in, in how sure, the city is yeah. designed and function functions. So yeah, like I, I do complain about it. I, I think I've gotten used to it a lot. So I think I complain about it a little less. Now I think I do, but I might have complained about it in all new ways on a new album, but I'm not even <laughs> conscious of <laughs> right now. I'm just going to have to stop well, doing I just, that. I think about the track on the new album where you talk about living in that apartment and just going crazy. Haunt to me with the view. Haunt me with the view. City gets fucking loud. Who's telling me what to do? What to do? Who's telling me There's also a line in the song that says, I want to paint things but can't hold still. I miss my grandmother's smile and her oatmeal. Sometimes I don't even know why I say things. All my heroes are singers that can't sing. I want to paint things but can't hold still. I miss my grandmother's smile and her oatmeal. When I fuck up, I know how a goat feels. It's one of those times where you're listening to somebody and you're like, yeah, this is just a, I'm bopping my head, I'm having a good time, and uh-oh, my heart's broken. And it's it's one of those things that like, you really you really can just like drill down into a person's soul if you're not careful. Like, I just want to let you know the power that you have. It's, it's good to remind me of it because I don't I don't often think of that but you know what like I remember when I wrote that I was I was like through writing this song and looking back and I was thinking this song's kind of a drag so then like at the end I just started kind of doing some free association it wasn't freestyle it wasn't off the head but like the writing was very free association and it was kind of like to give myself some levity coming out of this the subject matter of the song which was very to me like very kind of finger waggy in a way that I'm I'm not typically and so, yeah, like, I, I enjoy the last part of the song, I think, more than I like the rest of it. But I, I didn't consider that it is kind of like a gut punch out of nowhere. It, I mean, it's, I mean, I would, again, it's just one of those real like, whoa, <laughs> that's a, that's a lot. I heard some lucky guys live a hundred lives and wake up with a stomach full of half-dead butterflies. I'm full of dread for the fade to the evening as each nightfall brings the blaze to the guillotine. Some nights struck down trying to stand on my power. Most nights on my belly playing dead like a coward with eyes tight. A short about a guy that dies every night. I feel like this on this very, very surface is about mortality, about just wanting to extend your life, wanting to do everything, wanting to to be do as much as possible. But it also feels to me that there's like a undercurrent of just like how it feels to not be able to do something and how that feels like a small death. I've died on the phone. I've died over email. I've died in the silence where the limbs of a tree fell and lived for a brief spell. I lose consciousness in the middle of a grief yell. Waking in a deep well to start it all over when the pendulum drifts, which for which two gods birthed this to begin with. There's a line in there about being, you know, I've, I've died by email, I've died by phone call, that kind of thing. And I just imagine those in my, in my head as, you know, rejections or letdowns or plans falling through even like you were excited about or concert tickets getting torn up or whatever that is like can you speak on that is that is that happening at both layers it's or is... happening like this song is like probably got like five layers like probably <laughs> like there's layers of the song i don't even have access to it was like one of those things where like once i got that premise in my head mm-hmm. i just really I, it was like i wrote everything that i could think about that concept in this song and so, like, there's relationship stuff in it. There's mortality stuff in it. There's police brutality stuff in it. Like, there's there's yeah. a lot happening in this song. It's really operating on a, on a lot of levels. And it's like a real, I don't know, it's like one of those explorations of, like, my 
subconscious based on this very particular premise. And it feels like that, I think, when you listen to it. It doesn't necessarily feel literal at all. Like, it feels like there's a lot going on, and you can just peel back layers, and it's going to hit you at different times and to make you feel different things, I think. The second verse is probably my favorite verse. I'm hoping one day that my carcass is hard-boiled. I'm stuck in the cycle of a cartoon gargoyle. And if I live to be 101 days old, I grow straight up to the sun and get charbroiled. But maybe everlasting life is a curse, though. Eternity is drama, making life a commercial. But no 30-second advert has enough building. There's a lot There's a lot of pain in that song. Is this one of the ones where you're like, I don't maybe want to listen to it, actually, now that I think about it? There were some songs on here. This is one of them, Curse of Hypervigilance is another one where I just really felt like, oh, this is one of them ones. This is going to kill everybody. Like, this is going to, this is the greatest thing ever. And I think that sometimes my emotions about how the album was received can kind of get in my way of listening. It's always, it feels like any creative thing that you do that you spend the most time on and that you think is going to be the thing uh, is never, ever the thing. It's always the thing that you're like, I just did this in 10 seconds or whatever that equivalent is that of like, I just, I feel like I put no, no part of myself into this and threw it out there. And now everybody loves it. And it's, I don't even feel like that's who I am. Like, it's really frustrating sometimes how people accept things and don't accept things from you. I didn't necessarily have a mechanism in my mind to like understand how I would feel if this album wasn't received the way like dark comedy was. I think when I was making it, I just didn't even have that mechanism. I took a lot from the fact that it wasn't, and I learned a lot. And now, like, you know, like, that's not a thing that would bother me as much. But, you know, at that time, like, I expected everything to be a progression because everything up until that point pretty much had been. And so I don't think I was mentally prepared for it not to be the next definitive step forward. You and I are roughly the same age. We're right at 40. I think I'm at 41. We both grew up playing video games. I think video games fundamentally broke us in a certain way because in a video game, when you level up, very rarely do you go back down. And I was I was having this conversation with a friend of mine and he was um, talking about how when he was a kid, he used to like do little small wooden carvings. And he did one and it looked like a boat and he gave it to his dad. And his dad was like, oh, that's so cute. And then he did the next one and the next one sucked ass. <laughs> he said it was the worst one he's ever done. And he's like, but I did the first one and everybody loved it. This is just a hunk of shit. Why didn't I get better like why and i feel like uh, learning that lesson whenever you have to learn it especially about creative endeavors is so so hard about like oh i'm doing this thing and ten thousand people like me and i do the second thing and a hundred people like me and it's always the people that don't like you that get stuck in my head you know what i'm saying like it's not the hundred people that matter to me it's the 9900 that don't i used to think exactly like that and and the negative stuff used to stick out to me so much more but i think that i have i at least in my own journey i would say i've matured a little bit to the point where like I can be a little bit more grounded. So this is one thing about negative reactions versus positive ones. Negative ones tend to be very acute and specific and positive ones seems to be like more general. Like I loved it. You know, like that's a great sentiment. I hate songs six and seven. Like that's very specific. You know what I'm <laughs> yeah, saying? Okay, I see. And, yeah, and, and I think just I don't like the fourth line on this. Exactly. Verse. <laughs> and I, and I think this the specificity of that. Like I think just naturally you're going to chew on that more because it's more specific. You know, um, but I I do think that I'm at a place now where I'm able to at least emotionally see the bigger picture more than just the micro responses. Tell me about protectors of the heat. This song, along with Dang is Invincible, seems like a departure from the rest of the album, just musically, sonically. Very specifically, I want you to tell me about whatever the noise is that comes on when you start rapping in the second half of the song, because it just makes my brain tingle in a good way, and I love it. <laughs> Yo, check. I'm in an MJ jacket with 11 gold buttons, trying to tell you what to do when I never know nothing. It's a secret we're all damn desperate for Filler than the wet grass with lungs full of petrichor What's the method? Fuck is the suggestion Look at the I'd have to email Paul and ask him what, <laughs> what that was um, But yeah, it's me and Hemlock Ernst Shout out to Sam I just like that beat It felt freaky and stripped down It reminded me of like old Project Blowed Like underground, grimy stuff It is a departure because it's just a lot less developed musically but it's i think it's good for that it's almost like a point in the album where you're you can kind of reassess a little bit where you're like oh okay we're oh okay we, they, this is not what those guys are we can do anything yeah, we're chilling out a little bit we can we can take some different approaches and kind of just make a make a little weird rap song you know because everything else is so conceptual i feel like this song is more kind of like a stripped down just going at it type thing 
just rapping. Yep. Yeah, y'all y'all both rap your asses off on this song. Like it is it is him like his goes crazy on his first man. That's great. Gatsby. Seven-headed dragon, ashy wake of Ido Cassio, carry pens by the god of no little Mario, tortoiseshell spectacles and monocles, diamond fitted, spinning from ruby necklaces, high polish. I ain't got a wallet, just paper clips and newspaper clipping, suggestion, new papers, missions, overtaking the district, far from pensive, emotional. When you heard that for the first time, or you were like, uh-oh. Yeah, I mean, certainly. <laughs> like, I, gotta, I gotta step my game Certainly, up. <laughs> he, like, because he did go first, um, and, and he sent it to me, and I was like, oh, shit, okay, yeah, I gotta, gotta put my rapping shoes on, yeah. Insecurity Part 2, The More and The Marry Her. I can't describe to you the amount of secondhand anxiety this song gives me. Yeah, if you're an empath, this is a rough one. No, girl, it's all good. Ain't nothing special I had to say. Don't feel weird. There's a chair here. Just let me put this here bag away. It's all good. All gravy. Let's all hang and be real good pals. Let's start drinking because Lord knows I don't want to feel shit right now. What's wrong? Nothing precious. Just work shit. You know, you, know, you mentioned earlier about making music that not necessarily everybody's going to like and i like this song but i don't know that i can listen to this song a whole lot I, I, like when i'm when we're done with this interview like i'm gonna uncheck it on spotify and I'm just gonna <laughs> skip it from now on. like not even <laughs> it no longer exists yeah it no longer exists because man just the entire concept of you meeting up with somebody and the vibe i get is like you had plans with somebody and somebody else showed up unexpectedly like whether that was a romantic thing or a friend thing or whatever but just the oh i gotta move my bag i don't even know why it's here like all of this stuff man it just makes me want to crawl out of my skin like is this based on real world feelings from you it's based on a real feeling but it's not a real story it's just like an extrapolation like this is really one of the songs that helped me figure out that these these songs were little movies because that's really what this was, is like, I want to write a story song that just feels like this weird thing that can happen sometimes. I saw Paul talking about your music and about like when he first started listening to your music and how it made him feel like every one of your songs is like a little movie. It made him see things in his head and Drunk Dreaming, Drive Bar Support Group, and this one it is all exactly like that where it just inspires these visions. And it's interesting to me how you specifically can make that either be kind of whimsical, like in Drunk Dreaming with Obama on the drone and MLK <laughs> on the bus and all that stuff. Like it's very whimsical and funny. Or you can have this insecurity part too where you're like, oh, nope, you have made Jeremy have an anxiety attack on the on the highway <laughs> couldn't sit so i walked around i thought i saw a clown so i fought the crowd Kill them all. and every time i close my eyes a tiny obama in a drone flies by now gladys hold my call drive bar support group i'm curious the structure of the song is a little different um and that there's singing on the hook uh, a lot more than you're rapping like you have pretty small verses throughout this whole thing and there's a lot more singing the demo version has me singing it and and that's why it's the demo <laughs> like, yeah. we've gone too far we don't want to go back home we don't like to see each other but we don't want to go back home so because we know what's waiting we don't want to go back home we've all gathered here There's a weird attraction for me um, to dive bars and to hanging out at dive bars and being sad. I love a dive. Like bar. I have this. Like, I love it. It's it's like the best place to hang out in the world, man. Like I, it's the reason. Like if it, me and my wife love to do it together. Like we'll just go sit at a dive bar somewhere. No windows. windows blacked out. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yes, that's it. Bad cheese sticks, but I mean they're they're what's there, so who cares? Like you're gonna order it because you're three beers deep on a Tuesday. <laughs> um, and, you know, but there's a there's an idea of this of like uh, not wanting to leave this place. Like I'm just gonna stay here as opposed to go going home. That I I just I find really attractive. Like there's a there's a person in my brain that just wants to go do this today. Does that person exist in your brain still? Oh, absolutely. That's super real for me, and it's something that like I've had to explore in my life. Yeah, it definitely comes from a real place. It definitely, I'm definitely a person who has dipped into a bar in the afternoon because I had some free time and and just really, just really comfortable in a dive bar with the rest of the people who are really comfortable in dive bars. Like I feel like, in some sense, that's my tribe. Without ever talking to them, right? Yeah, it's not even about like. Actually, I get really annoyed when. <laughs> People at dive bars. Do people talk. Yeah, well, 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 in the afternoon, like if it's you know if it's like an afternoon thing, because like I, yeah, I don't know, like that tends to not be the greatest conversation. Although this one time here in L.A. at this place called the Drawing Room, which is really famous, like I dipped into a bar for the afternoon, and this really dope old like session musician started talking to me, and that was great. 
that's the dream. That's the that's that's running into the the, the famous American author and being like, yeah, tell me your stories or, or whatever. Somebody's drunk Uncle Jack who's who's been in there since seven a.m. <laughs> I might not want to talk to him. <laughs> you know, let me tell you about the lizards. Yeah. <laughs> birds aren't real. Right. <laughs> Jack, calm down. We're not here for that right now, man. We're not we're not doing it. Uh, drunk dreaming, I think, is a is a really fun song. Is there? I, I love this because it's just a story about I'm a little too drunk. I feel pretty good about myself. I'm going to go home. Things happen that are great on the way there. I think most people that were listening to this song probably have had these experiences. Nothing's the same. I forgot what they call you, but what's in the name? Who the fuck is you? I'm buzzed and ashamed. I forgot what was. Now my blood's full of flames. Now watch me do this dance. I feel like I'm in true romance. What a direct So I was listening to this beat, and I was listening to this beat again on the tube in London, because I was writing this on the day we were recording. I listened to the beat, and I loved it, and that delivery, that melodic delivery started going in my head. And I I had that before I had anything else. And I was like, what song premise can give me the excuse to confidently (laughs) do that delivery? And then I was just like, oh, I'm drunk. There's a a lot going on there. But, I mean, literally, it was... um, Music informing melodic approach, and then how can I make that approach work? This might be dumb, but when them butterfly wings on your face come from. Uh, let's finish it out with a reprieve. Opening verse of this talks about being trapped in a bubble, hiding in a bubble. Raised in a bubble, face to the bubble, face to the window, safe from the trouble. Crack rock apocalypse, chase through the rubble. My auntie's a zombie, same as my uncle. Projects we stayed for a couple, stayed in my inner space like Hubble. I came back to Earth for some days, I struggled. This feels like a proto brick bodies a little bit, where you're kind of talking about that experience. Do you see the relationship now? I see it more related to anime trauma and divorce, actually. I see it more related to me trying to figure out how to talk about emotional stuff. And that's why it's like at the end of the album, like I, I wouldn't have had the the courage to put it any earlier because I just was, I was so uncomfortable with the thought of like really rapping about how I feel about stuff. Um, like this one ain't a movie. Like this one was like me starting to deal with some of the shit that I deal with in therapy now. You know, just really like, starting to plumb the depths of my emotional experience uh, in a song. I feel like this is one of the rare times that you talk about anger in not a funny way. Like there's plenty of times where you're talking about being angry about something, but this is one of the few times where you don't undercut it at all. You're just kind of saying exactly how you feel, and it feels a lot more real because of that. That might be even more the link between the song Anime Trauma Divorce, because yeah, no attempt to add levity or try to smile my way through it like actually confronting the dark shit and letting that just sit as what it is rather than trying to tie it up with anything else i have one more question uh and it's from patreon apparently your friend video dave made a sequel to this album he did hella personal film festival part two good evening thank you for joining us i got dr specter tickets it's playing at the spectrum. Best movie since Thanos. Best movie since Red Rock. Is there a story there? Like, what is the connection between the two? I'm, I'm just curious at this point. This album title we've decided is going to be franchisable. And this is the, the rules to the franchise are as follows. It has to be done with one MC and one producer. And it has to have a cover by Frohawk Two Feathers. It's both, both my project and his project do because uh, we all went to college together meet dave and, and that artist frohawk two feathers anybody can do it they just have to they have to satisfy those two requirements and then they can make their own hell of personal film festival shout out to frohawk because the, the art on this is amazing i was going to talk about that in a little bit it's so good it's so it's so good i guess have you reconnected with paul since making this album since releasing it do you guys talk still yeah we hung out a little bit uh i was in london for a tour earlier this year and me and him hung out a little bit we don't talk like super often but yeah, like whenever we see each other, we can chop it up a good long time. Are we going to see a part three? Hell, a person film festival part three? I don't think so. As much as I enjoy this project, 
I don't love making an album with one producer. I, it's just not my favorite way to do stuff. Well, do you have any final thoughts that you do you want to say about this album? Because I, I think we answered all of my questions and all of Patreon's questions. I just want to say I, I really do love it. I think it's a really special little project. I hope if people haven't heard it, they dig into it. It's maybe it's maybe not for everybody, which is fine because I don't think, like I was saying earlier, I don't think any of my shit is for everybody. But uh, I think I think that there's some stuff here. I think there's some really thoughtful and layered stuff here to dig into. I think it's interesting because we've talked a lot about the albums that kind of bookend this one, uh, Dark Comedy and the other ones around it. And I feel like a, a Mike Eagle fan would listen to this and like more Mike Eagle. Like to me, it's just it's just more and more as good. Maybe people listen to it and like, oh, this is this is like poppy Mike Eagle. But like, if you really listen to it, it's not at all. Like you're talking about some real shit. Like you're you're going through it through in, in 13 tracks or 14 tracks or whatever. So I think everybody run to Spotify right now, run to Bandcamp right now, buy it, stream it. And then after that, listen to uh, Don't Give Up Skeleton podcast or Days of Future cast which i plan on getting into whenever whenever i can line my x-men reading up with you alls i'm gonna dig into that show we're about to start rick remender's uncanny x-force that's such a great run i love that run dude it's such it's such a good run man it is i am so excited that's when i'll tap into it because i love that run fantastic fantastic arc so i I look forward to tapping in with y'all for that Thanks, Mike. I really appreciate this opportunity, man. Well, thank you for wanting to do it. Uh, I appreciate it very much, man. And um, I appreciate all that you do in the world of letting people know about cool shit, man.